Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. From David's Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. I was able to project myself into these worlds and galvanize support via the funk to be like my most ideal self. And it's the power of the funk, the holy funk with the capital F. I think it's the same plane because I couldn't I couldn't analyze it at first. But I, but I go out of my way to relate to the next generation. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey, everybody, it's Helen here, and I'm so excited to be back for another season hosting Dialogues. When I learned that the legendary George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic was good friends with the Los Angeles-based artist Lauren Halsey, I immediately knew that I wanted to invite them onto the podcast. Not least because they are both totally brilliant, but also because they are a good four decades apart. And there is something truly extraordinary about an intergenerational friendship, how influence moves in both directions, and the exchange of ideas can metabolize into something totally new. I had so much fun making this episode, and I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, everybody. It's Helen Molesworth here. I am with Lauren Halsey and George Clinton. I know that the two of you have struck up a friendship, and I'm really interested in it because it's cross-generational, cross-disciplinary. And I wanted to talk to you, Lauren, maybe if you could start. I know I've heard you talk a little bit like on the fly about your fascination with Clinton and Funkadelic. Yeah, it's a really deep thing for me. I mean, it's the deepest thing. And so, I mean, I have a very long history with, with Parliament. Introduced to me by via my father, via my cousin Rico, who just were music heads, um, who had their own like really beautiful taste in funk. It was very P-funk. And so driving home from school, I was listening to Aqua Boogie. Um, the halftime during the Raiders game, South Central in the 90s, we're hearing gaming on you. Uh, my father trying to teach me a lesson. He's like riffing off of Parliament lyrics. And I could remember when, and, and sorry, George, I, this is like, I should have bought it, but I didn't have the means as a kid. But I could remember when downloading music came out and everyone in school, like me, you know, 12, 13 year olds, we first get the internet. We download LimeWire and all of a sudden you can type in someone's name and you can get their entire catalog. So and you, it, the risk is like crashing your computer and like ruining this like beautiful vessel that your parents spent all this money on for you, like do your homework, you know. And uh, I typed in Parliament Funkadelic and uh, this is pre-YouTube. So there weren't visuals yet, at least for me. 
And it just like, it tripped me out. And the analogies were so complex between uh, the placemaking on earth to non-linear worlds of Egypt and underwater to Chocolate City. And it was this space as like a very emo, sad, I had joy 100%, but emo, sad kid, I was able to project myself into these worlds and galvanize support via the funk to be like my most ideal self. And it just, it's the power of the funk, the holy funk with the capital F. So that, that was just like a thing. And like, I know, you know, for a fact, of course I'm, uh, you know, interested in, in remixing and, and um, sampling space because of like my biography, but a lot of it has to do with um, Parliament Funkadelic. And um, that's my career now. It's a huge anchor for my career and my heart and who I am. Um, it carried me to the Hammer Project, Hammer Museum Project, which was a remix of the Tripopulation album where I was introduced to George via our friend Flea, who George deeply collaborated with. Yeah, he comes to the the show at the Hammer and he's like, oh, Lauren, this is tight. Has George seen this? And I'm like, no, of course he hasn't. <laughs> you know, he doesn't even know I exist. He's like, oh, okay, I'm going to let him know. He's in town. I already knew he was in town because I was going to go to the show, you know. Right, at this point, I've been to like fucking 18 shows or something. And uh, he's like, he's going to come and see it. And I was like, oh, that's like so nice of him to say. And I, that was enough for me, you know. So I go home. I'm talking to Monique about it. And, and I was like, please, and I tell George. And then we make it home and Flea says, come back to the hammer. George is on the way. And I was like, oh, shit, I got to change my outfit. And um, <laughs> I go back and I'm like in it. And uh, I turn around and it's just like George and Carlon and Norwood just like, you know, beam down. And I think it was like, that was it. That's an amazing story. So, George, when you get there, Flea calls you. You show up. There's this young woman making artwork. What did you think? To have them call me and tell me about a young lady from Compton, which is the, such a history for us with the music. And that she, I didn't realize how young she was until she got there. But when we got to the museum, and I saw her piece, I realized that we were successful at reaching somebody with the G-Funk theories and metaphors, and, and somebody had gotten it really good when I seen her. I'm expecting her to be somebody older, you know, that grew with the music. But to see her and see how she had been interpreted at such a young age, it reinforced my feelings that we had succeeded around Compton and, you know, outside of the music, but all the theory of funk. I mean, that was enough to let me know this is a whole new concept. Like she said, uh, sampling visuals and, and tell that story and reignited my whole thing of creativity. I'm out here trying to you know, make music and get into the pain thing myself. 
She didn't even know that. I actually wanted to ask you about that. So I know that you have started painting and that I went and saw your exhibition. I think it was last year at Jeffrey Deitch in Los Angeles. I was there the day Lauren had made this beautiful like stage and you and some of the Funketeers were performing, but there was also a painting show. You had a straight up legit painting show. And I wanted to ask you, one, if you had started painting in, like, had you always painted or did you paint out of your relationship with Lauren? I had started painting about in the 80s, 80s, early 90s. Doodling, you know, you know, like I said, and I had a bunch of artists around myself, you know, like Overton Lord, who did the Parliament album and Bootsy's album covers. We had Pedro Bell, who did the uh, Funkadelic stuff. So we was always around the art, like like the other fans were. And I really fell in love with it. It was a means of occupying my time and catching people off guard that didn't know that I did that at all. And I could make a concept out of it. And like I said, in talking to her, it reignited that wide open. What's the difference for you between making music and making paintings? I'm glad you asked that because as I tried, as I started painting, I realized that other part of, of, of art, you have to be able to intellectualize it. You have to be able to like talk about it and, and, and tell what it is that, you know, how you do it. I had went through that with the music already because I started out as a doo-wop singer and working at Motown which was refined, sophisticated producing, writing songs. And right about the time we got a hit record, Psychedelic came in and, and rock and roll, which was the exact opposite of that. Which, you know, where we used to be trying to be smooth, clear and clean, feedback and, and noise became the feeling. You had to make the interpretation. Then you had to explain why you went from Motown to that. So once I started painting, I realized, and I'm colorblind too, that's another thing. So I had to like, so I have to intellectualize who, what it is I'm looking at. I never thought of it like that. It's just light and dark or shades fading. And, and another thing, I was a barber. I'm a barber, so I know how to fade. I know the concept of shades. So I could do it without knowing the color. I could do it by value. So, but it took me to think about music, the values, the tones, all of them, both of them have the same thing, tones and colors. You see colors one way, but I can see colors by feeling the same way I do music. Because I didn't go to school for art, but then again, I didn't go to school for music. I never wrote music, you never played an instrument, but I ended up being the producer and the arranger and the writer. But directing those feelings. One of the things is I was thinking about both of your work and I was thinking if I was going to explain what you share as artists, one of the biggest things I think you share is an incredible relationship to the collective. I'll refer to my grandmother's backyard. Yeah. So when I, when I first started making work and it was like, a scale that just wasn't manageable by me. And that was like obvious to my grandmother, to my friends, um, folks who weren't uh, 
at, up until that point interested in helping me collaborate on a sculpture, they just, out of the necessity of getting it done and like love, um, like we need to help you. And so I can remember making a float and my grandmother called up the church and called up my aunts. Um, at that same moment, the Raiders were playing. So my, my dad's cousins were over. Kids were riding by on the bikes and hopped off. And in that moment, I thought like how beautiful it could be to sort of co-author these love letters um, to my neighborhood with my neighborhood and not decide what the meaning should be or what the form should be um, and then assign that to people. It was like at the time, very like sort of freestyle, free form. It's all of us. It was as much as my of my little cousin's London's work as it was mine. Now it's changed because there's much more at stake. And I'm I'll just say I'm trying to get back to that groove again. Do you think listening to Clinton and Funkadelic as a kid got you some of that big vision or that idea that you could make something with all those other people? Yeah, I mean, I thought I could be in the band at the time. I genuinely thought, like, I thought they're going to be touring forever. I'm going to be in this band. And I would write it in my journal. Um, and as I got older, I was like, oh, fuck, I don't play an instrument like that. What, what am I going to do? And so I thought, oh, well, I could be a sculptor in the band. And like, it's been great, you know. Um, but yeah, definitely just seeing once YouTube came out and I was able to see the tours from like 76, 79. It's like, whoa, it's a little bit of everybody contributing to like this beautiful, like sort of funk opera of stuff. Mm. What she just said was a perfect replica of how I felt. When I saw Motown and saw what Smokey Robinson was doing as a, a new thing called a songwriter, not only for the miracles, but for the temptations for Marvin Gaye and Barry Gordy had a stable of writers and producers who were superstars. To me, being a writer, I knew all the producers, the writers, and Motown was someplace I wanted to be. I went, I went, I ended up working for Barry Gordy's wife in New York. Him and him broke up, split up. So I got out to Detroit, found my way around Detroit and tried to get into Motown. We auditioned with Martha Reeves and trying to be part of that family. We went through all of that. I got a hit record called I Just Want to Testify. So now I'm in Detroit, but it wasn't with Motown. It was a company down the street across the street from them. But it was a hit record. Still, my dream was always to do what Motown did because Psychedelic came out. So we were Funkadelic, now we Parliament and Funkadelic. I could do what I did at Motown. I could do what Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, and all of them were doing with the other new music. We had Parliament, now we got Funkadelic, our little brothers, who's the band. And they were much younger than us. And that we became really hot with that. We run into Bootsy, who had just left James Brown. He was gonna be, he was gonna play with us for a minute, because our bass player and guitar player went to Motown. They stayed with Motown, working with the Temptations and stuff. So now we got Bootsy. Now we got all these musicians. We don't find nobody, but we keep getting larger. I have a question. How did you find Bernie Worrell? Bernie Worrell was part of the 
the Funkadelic right from the get-go. Okay. He was right. All of them were from Plainfield, New Jersey. Eddie Hazel, Did you meet them in the barbershop? In the barbershop. Okay. All of, all of them, I used to, Bernie used to get a whipping for coming around and getting his hair done in my barbershop. Yeah. You know, wow. he's 14, 13 years old. Yeah. So how do you guys, so you have all these other people that you're working with. How do you guys negotiate the difference between like the marquee name and the not so marquee name? Well, we we, we like we like that kind of trouble because our thing was not to be a, a band per se. We wanted to be like rock and roll bands, where the fans knew everybody in the band. Yeah. They knew the guitar player. They knew the drummer. You know him by name. You know the horn section, Fred Wesley. Maceo Parker. Yeah, you knew everybody because everybody was there because they wanted to be a star. You know, that's why they were there. So even the roadies ended up being a, a musicians in the band. Oftentimes, that's the way it was. And the marquee was, we didn't really care. Parliament, Funkadelic, P-Funk. Bootsy, we really didn't care. We felt like we was all of those things. I knew it was going to be a problem, but it was a problem that I like having. It's a problem I would like fixing up, doing what we're doing now, analyzing it and talking about it. But to stop and do that while we was making music, we didn't want to do that because I knew that wouldn't last. Fans come and go. So I was going to ride it till the spaceship run out of gas, come back and try to do another one of those, go in the water and do it. And at the same time, you got to worry about lawyers and managers around you. They see this gold mine of, of talent. They come to each one of them individually. Mm. You want a deal, you know? And so I tried to get them all deals while they were there. And if the brides would have got a hit, I was bride made. <laughs> that's the way we felt about each other. Whoever got the hit record, that's who we become. I want to ask you all about Afrofuturism. You know, if you look up Afrofuturism on, online, George Clinton, Funkadelic, you are part of the essential DNA of the movement that we now call Afrofuturism. And Lauren, when we talk about your work, we definitely, like that, that terminology is almost always part of the conversation. And I guess I'm curious, one, for George, did you... Did you know you were making Afrofuturism? Was that something you were conscious of? Like, or is that a term that came later and then you thought about it? No, I kind of I kind of got into that late 50s, early 60s with jazz musicians and you know, like Sun Ra, Farrah Saunders, and you know, jazz musicians, they did that way out of space type of concept that was their you know, and it was black jazz, you know, but it was far out. Then Jimi Hendrix did the same thing with rock and roll. He took that to a, a spaced out place. And so when we did Maggot Brain, Free Your Mind, Your Ass Will Follow, I kind of knew then that it was Afrofuturism blues from the 30s and 40s. That's what Eric Clapton them played. So I knew that it's a black history of of um of black music, but then you got Motown, which was the future at that time. All of that mix, that's what we did when we tried to mix Motown with all the old jazz and the mm. rock and roll. That we considered Afrofuturism. Sun Ra was like the epitome of it. Right. 
at that time, you know. And Jimi Hendrix was the rock and roll version of it. And then you know, you had Miles and a lot of Farrah Saunders who played with the concept of off-planet <laughs> type of thing. So that black, futuristic, as a concept to me, we thought about the definitely thought about the time we did Maggot Brain, we was definitely knew that that America eats its young people. Right. And Lauren, you kind of just come into Afrofuturism. It already exists. You're not, like, what does the term mean for you? It's not my term. I mean, I just always thought, I learned it when I got to CalArts. They were like, you're the Afrofuture. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm going to, not to be a super fan, but I am. I'm going to just say I, I think I'm funking around for fun. And it's a term that's a bit washed out for me. I respect it. Um, and it definitely, when I learned it, it was like sort of a North Star. But um, I know I certainly I'm building imaginative landscapes, but they're definitely inspired by P-Funk that was, you know, beaming me up to, you know, Chocolate City and I'm kicking it with pharaohs and I'm dodging Sir Nose. Um, but it's not about taking flight to the stars and starting over. It's not about escapism. It's about like a, it's about the here and now in South Central inspired by like a P-Funk affect and attitude. So I appreciate the language, but it's it's not one that I use. I hope people don't hate me for saying that. No, but. I think that's ah, no, no. Girl, you would not be the first artist to reject like a term like that. They're going to be like, yeah, I'm anti-Black. I wouldn't say, yeah, I'm a sellout. Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, you're young enough. It's been a long week. And it's you're young enough to do that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I was actually glad, glad to hear it because I had been a part of it, and it was something for me to collect around new that get me back into the in the. And plus, I'm already I'm into the, the Anunnaki's anyway, and the yeah, the yeah, dope, and the dope guns and, no, and all of that. So I, I'm already into it. But for you, I can understand it. To that's a good defense to that ain't all. You are all of it. You are definitely. It's that like I show up. People are like Afrofuturism, and I'm oh, like. Yeah. I mean, just since 2010, you know, and I'm like, actually, um, you know that song, How Do You View You? Yeah. Or do you know Ain't Nothing But a Jam? Or, you know, or do you know Uncle Jam? That's funny, because Overton feels the same way. He didn't want to go for it. We're going to collaborate, Helen. I know y'all are going to collaborate. You want to tell me about it? Well, we're figuring it out, but uh -huh. we're going to do... Like ama an amazing show that pays homage to Parliament with like fellow Funketeers that are, it's also like an intergenerational response right. to, you, mm -hmm. to this. So I'm I'm manifesting right now. So everyone from Fishbone to Red Hot Chili Peppers to Kendrick to Kamazi. And so I've been working with George's um, grandkids to figure this out. And we're like on it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to manifest it with you. Um, I have one last question for the two of you. I have a lot of warm feeling in my heart talking to the two of you today. And I realize that one of the reasons I have it is because of the intergenerational 
nature of your friendship. I think intergenerational friendships are are they're rare and I think they're sacred. And I guess I wonder if each of you could say, is there something you've learned about in the world from the other one based on your age, based on how many years you've been here on planet Earth? Like, George, is there something that Lauren has shown you because she's young? And Lauren, is there something George has shown you because he's an elder? Or are you just on the same astral plane and the age doesn't matter? Like, I'm just really curious how it works. I think it's the same plane because I couldn't I couldn't analyze it at first, but I, but I go out of my way to relate to the next generation and the generations, you know, before that. Uh, every generation come in, even when they get on your nerve, you know, like with music, when they change in music, it really gets on your nerve until you get familiar with it and allow yourself to become acquainted with it. And you can end up enjoying it like everybody else. I can predict that musically. I can I can hear Cardi B and tell you that's going to be a star, not because of her obvious qualities, but just the nerve and the, her whole body language that she knew what she was doing. And you can tell which ones, like Kendrick Lamar. I could tell when he came around that this is an old man. He, it was easy to relate. She surprised me because she did it with our stuff and went back and understood it the way we did it years and years ago. I love that you that you could admit that the new music gets on your nerves and then you kind of, you've got to like make your peace with it. Lauren, how about you? What have you learned from, what have you learned from George now that you guys are friends that, that maybe you couldn't have learned if you'd just been listening to the music? Well, now I'm like, I'm not just seeing it on the screen or from a stage and like interpreting what I think I know. It's like I'm, I've gotten to know George and like his like super wonderful, amazing wife, Carlon. And like, I know people who like live with the funk in their heart and like to the, like, it's, it's like bulletproof. It's just so beautiful. It's the essence. And it's like going to eat with them hanging out, us just sitting down. It's like coming to my studio, um, hanging out in a green room. It's just like, it's the aura. And I'm like, wow, I if I could forever hold on to that, maybe I also could empower imaginations and hearts in the way that like this collective has for me. Because it's like, it's the real deal, holy film. It's not just like putting on the costume and performing and taking it off. I've been to the Met rooftop now a couple of times, and I've watched people interact with your rooftop commission. Man, like the the emotional outpouring from just everyday people up on the roof at the Met is so intense, and it feels so beautiful and authentic. So tight. Thank you. Well, thank you for the the work, Mr. Clinton. Thank you for every party I ever went to. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, George. Good seeing you, Lauren. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. 
I hope you join us here next time.